Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So if you want to provide even better patient care and increase your revenue, then check out Redoc Power by XFIT. It's a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution, plus opt-in to completely outsource billing services. That's the best way to optimize revenue. So imagine PT billing, coding, and compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. To learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services, check them out at nethealth.com slash healthy. Now you can probably tell my voice is a little raspy. I'm a little talked out after being at the combined sections meeting brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association, which was literally, I literally got home today. Um, it was in New Orleans and it was a lot of fun, a lot of meeting new people and doing a lot of podcasting. So today's podcast is the fourth installment of our ever-popular series on sex with doctors Sandy Hilton, Sarah Haig, and Jason Falvey. And normally we just kind of do this on our own, but this time we decided to do it in front of an audience at CSM. So what you're going to hear is the live recording. I don't think I'm really going to edit anything because it's like we want it to be like it's live. And what did we talk about this time? We talked about sex after having a baby. We talked about LGBTQI issues. We spoke about sex after cardiovascular event and what that is similar to in everyday tasks. Uh, So it was a great conversation. The audience was wonderful. They had great questions and really good input and insight. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Like I said, I'm not really going to edit anything out of this because I want it to be like it was live and you were sitting there in the audience with us. So enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We are coming to you live from the Combined Sections meeting in New Orleans. And this is our fourth Annual? Is that a thing? Fourth annual? It sounds weird. At any rate, it's our fourth talk on sex, and we've covered a lot of topics in the past. Um, And today we have a whole bunch of topics courtesy of the Doctor of Physical Therapy group on Facebook. So we're going to try and get to as many questions as we can. We have an audience here, so hopefully we'll be able to get some questions from them as well. And before we get started, I'll just have everyone introduce themselves individually. So, um... We'll start with Jason. Okay. I'm Jason Falvey. I am a physical therapist and PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I do no research related to sex. However, I am very interested in the topic. Um, (laughs) I'm interested in the topic as a scientist. And... uh, Yeah, so, and I've gotten involved with this from Sandy and Sarah and Karen uh, from other conferences we've been to, and I'm very excited to just give my insights as a geriatric specialist and how some of these sex issues affect older adults. I'll throw in also just general research in general. He has, um, I'm just going to finish his intro. Uh, he, He actually has notes that are rivaling the notes I have in my head, which makes me a little nervous, but we'll have a research... I know, competition in a bit. Um, so I'm Sarah Haig. I am one of the two therapists at Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness in Chicago. And I think that sex is of special interest to us at Entropy because people don't like to talk about it, but it's part of life. And when it's not going well, it really sucks. And sometimes those are reasons, um, the reasons that it is not as good as you hope it is, are things that can change. So, um, yeah, so we take a lot of, I don't know, I guess pride in addressing the issues other people don't want to talk about. Uh, I'm Sandy Hilton, and I have absolutely nothing to add after that. I'm the other part of entropy physiotherapy. I think that one of the most important things about helping people realize that sex is an integral part of life is fitting it into their cultural and religious and comfort range in that there isn't a way to do it. It just needs to be what feels best for you. 
and we're most interested in helping that work and be comfortable and fun. It's not extra credit. It's not extra credit. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so really interested in doing this to, to try and dispel some myths out there about what people think um, might be a limitation or a, you have to stop or you have to do it a particular way. Um, there's just a lot of misinformation and this is an idea of how to correct that. Great. Okay, so what we're going to do, like I said, we have a lot of questions from the DPT student group. Um, and I think one of the first things that we'll get to and may piggyback off of a pre-con course that Sandy and Sarah did with Carrie Bow. Kari Bow? Kari Bow. So the first question is, what is the most dangerous position biomechanically? So it said, um, my physician friend said he sees a lot of penis injuries from the woman riding on top, severe muscle strains, things like that, or it's broken or what have you. So what, what are the most dangerous positions biomechanically? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do that, this in the spirit of Eric Mira and his, his blog post on um, what is, is VMO necessary in patellar rehab? The answer is no. Um, and that's his entire blog post. The, is there a, a dangerous position for sex? No. Uh, might there be something you're not used to or that needs to be adapted or you need some pillows for? Or practiced. Or practiced. Um, yes. Um, if you're not interested in it, it is unlikely to be as comfortable as if you are. Um, so I don't think there is a biomechanically dangerous position. And penises can't break. Um, back in PT school, we were... Um, there was yeah, I know the, one of the guys in the audience wipes his forehead. Um, phew! The, uh, in PT school... When we were doing cadaver lab, there, the optometrists, I went to Pacific University in Oregon, and the optometry students said um, that, that, you know, the whole thing about a boner and that there was an actual bone in the penis. And we're like, there isn't. And we kept threatening to bring a cross-section back to the dorm to prove it. But we didn't, because that would be wrong. But there, there really isn't. And there is a ligament that can sometimes get strained, just like anything else. But you know what's best for ligament repair? Loading it and using it. And I will let you ladies who are just at the sports congress take that even further. Oh. <laughs> Loading tissues does typically make them stronger. Um, all right, so do you want to take this, Jason, for your um, immediate research, but then I'm going to comment on it, if that's okay. okay. Sure. So there is a fair amount of research on this idea. They, they call it a penile fracture, but it's not actually considered a fracture. Sandy is absolutely correct. There's not a bone in there. It's a um, <laughs> it's a, yes, it's very funny. You have to get your laughs out now. Um, but there is, uh, there is some soft tissue injuries that can happen, and... Um, it can happen in a number of positions. There's actually some research that suggests that there's not really a positional preference as far as the injuries, but there's a fair number of severity differences as far as the doggy style position. Um, you know, there, there can be some, uh, especially with the very aggressive lateral movements of an erect penis can be the more, um, can be the more troublesome biomechanically. But other than that, there's really not a whole lot of biomechanical issues. And I, I read the research on PubMed. I'm reading an article right now that, that has a lot of awkward wording that I'm blushing just reading in my head. But yeah. I'm going to let Sarah comment on some of her uh, observations as well. Well, just, so just taking a look at the abstract that Jason's looking at, I'm not blushing quite so much. But it's funny because the question was originally that the, um, it's the woman on top that is more likely the situation. This study is showing that actually doggy style, so I'm assuming man doing most of the moving in that situation um, is when it happens. So like talking about a penile fracture, so I think understanding what, what it, what's happening during an erection and what might actually be breaking, it's kind of like a, a sharp bend, but nothing that can break. So there are tissues and it's, there's a lot of little, like a lot of little, little um, rooms where the blood can flow in to make everything erect. And so that's what's getting bent. So it smarts, but it's not broken. Um, it'll be okay. But I think... Do it again. 
Well, but again, I think honestly, so my advice as a pelvic floor therapist, if this was happening, if it happened once, I'd be like, don't you worry, get back on that horse and try again. But the other thing is, is to, is to actually practice. So in almost every other part of physical therapy, we talk about graded exposure. We talk about starting slow. We would talk about practicing. We would talk about doing it by yourself if you're not comfortable and then doing it in public or with a partner. No, I'm, I'm talking about in general, the concepts, not actually having sex in public, but, um, this is a quote from another class that Sandy was teaching that I piped up and is that the unfortunate thing with a penis is that it's attached to a person who has feelings. So if you're in a situation where practicing sex with another person who has feelings and emotions, it, it makes things challenging. So what I would recommend, is that what it recommends to... Oh no, that's a cause of fracture is actually masturbation. masturbation. So be very careful if you're no. going to practice. No, uh, no, don't be careful. Do what you do. <laughs> and should you run into issues, again, graded exposure and practice, I and, think, is the best answer. And, and so some of the things that strength, we, I make jokes in the clinic all the time about how strength and conditioning principles really do apply to pelvic health. It's just that the, the movement is like a centimeter or it's very small, but the scale is proportionally the same. So if you're having problems with loading and frequency and dosage of your program, just adapt it. You don't have to stop, but it might be technique it might be lubrication it might be coordination and timing all of those things that you would help someone with their tennis serve is the same kind of principle that you would help someone uh, figure out how to make all of these things work but we don't have to tell people to stop what they want just go yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think what, uh, what I meant to say, and what uh, Sandy and Sarah did a nice job correcting me, is that if, you're, if you have a, a movement concern, you know, start slowly. Movement you know. concern, I like that. <laughs> yes, if you have a movement concern or, or a technique concern, don't stop doing it, but definitely move slowly through it and go through the motions. It might not be super sexy to start with, but get the, get the movements and coordination down first, and I think that uh, helps with the safety. Yeah. So if we're talking about kind of incorporating these uh, different movements into your repertoire, it's like, like we said, it's the same thing as, from what it sounds like what you're saying, it's the same thing as saying to someone, if you're having trouble walking, well then let's start by walking 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, so on and so forth. So. If you had a strain or a sprain during a position sexually, then maybe you would start doing that position for a couple of seconds, maybe a couple of uh, 30 seconds, and then switch. You know, but I think the most important part here is to be open and honest with whoever your partner is so that they know what you're going through so that there's no misunderstanding or misinterpretation of what you're doing during the act, right? Okay. All right. So does anyone have any questions on that before we move on? No. Okay. So let's go on to then sex after having a baby. I feel like we might have covered this a little bit in some past podcasts, but it's always nice to kind of go through it again. So what are the recommendations for sex after having a baby? I don't know. We can cover both vaginally and C-section. Oh, I thought you said vaginally and rectally. I was like, oh, ba ba babies don't come out the back. I may not have had a baby, but I know where they come out of. I was on the whole sex thing. I was checking my blood pressure. <laughs> so, so most of the time, I, and I think this is really interesting in, our, in the field of physical therapy, right, is that we have medical restrictions and then we have, like, stuff that's not going well. And those are two different things. So usually after having a baby, it's recommended that women do not have sex for, like, six weeks. And it's really interesting because you're like, oh, all right, six weeks, enough time to heal. If you talk to most new moms, they're like, are you kidding me? Right? So, like, if we were, like, you want to have sex in three, at six weeks, there's a lot of women who are, like, N no. Yeah, no. more exciting? A nap? Um, a nap, yeah. <laughs> if I'm lying down, I'm going to be asleep. But also, I just, I just met with a woman who um, is eight weeks, uh, third-degree perineal tear, who she's like, so I had sex once and it hurt. I'm like, I think that's still within the normal realm of, like, tissue healing, and you get, like, a big gold star for even giving that a go, to be honest. Um, so there, there's that of 
of when can you, your doctor will usually tell you when you can start to do it. When does it start to feel good? That's going to vary for a lot of women depending on the mode of delivery. So much. And so much. Yeah. Okay. I like this. I'm like, I have thoughts. So and part of that is there's tissue healing. And then there's also your sense of self again, because it changes when you have a kid and you as a female have to figure out where all those bits and parts are and what still feels good and what doesn't. Cause it's not the same as it was before that person came out, whether it's from your belly or from your vagina, um, not the rectum. That's for Karen, <laughs> just to be clear. But but there is a part of that. So there's the tissue healing part, and then there's also that return of sensuality part, because you're you're feeding a kid and you're tired and you're trying to work and sleep and clean and do stuff and exercise and and sex may be very low on the priority level. That doesn't mean you're broken. It means you're tired, and that's not a pathophysiological thing. That's just a thing. It's. It's not. And to piggyback on that, the other thing is, is that you, like the woman, has just had the baby. And you have to think about the changes in relationships between her and her partner. So it used to be like, wow, we were like fun, sexy lovers. And it's like, wow, now you're a dad. And I just had a baby come out of my vagina. Um, and there's a lot of different priorities. And dad didn't just have a baby come out of his vagina. So it, it he's ready. She might not be. And there's a lot of things that psychosocially that do go into that and it's a really um, it can be a little bit of a tricky thing to do and I'll be honest one of the questions I ask is just like well have you if I see a woman postpartum is have you resumed sexual intercourse and if she's like no I'm, I, I ask her very politely well, is there any particular reason why if she tried and it hurt that's something I can help with if she's really pissed off because her husband does not seem to be falling into a very good rhythm with her that's another thing. Do you know what I mean? So there's a, does she just want to sleep? Because if she's horizontal, that's what she wants to be doing. Those are all very different things. Two of those don't need to be addressed by a physical therapist. The third one we can help with. So as, as the clinician, if you are, if someone comes to you, let's say they're coming to you for back pain, hip pain, knee pain, maybe not, and you're not a pelvic health therapist, and you ask the patient, you know, has anything happened lately? And they say, oh, I had a baby X number of weeks ago. How can the average therapist, can you give some tips on how to address this um, for the average therapist? Because we're not all pelvic health therapists. Well, I politely disagree that really all of us kind of are, or at least should know what's supposed to be happening down there. Um, but what, honestly, one of the questions I would say is what, so one, how did the baby come? Because honestly, either way is a commitment. Like having a C-section doesn't get you out of all of the things that might be happening if you have it vaginally. So there's a study that shows 12 months after delivery, regardless of mode, you have the same rate of incontinence, pain with intercourse, and fecal issues. So having a baby one way versus another, you're, you're, you're still rolling the dice. Yeah. There's not, like I said, there's not an easy way out. Um, so if they say, I've just had a baby, finding out how is really important. Because if someone had an abdominal surgery, you would find that significant. I'm not 100% sure why, but a lot of people are like, oh, you had a C-section. That's adorable. And carry on. That's a major abdominal surgery. Cutting through your abdomen, moving your bladder aside, cutting into your uterus, and taking out a child. Yeah. And then, and then they sew you up and are like, here you go. You're out in 48 hours or less. So it's not easy. Um, so my question is, how are they delivered? And are you having any issues with bowel, bladder, or sexual function? Because that's pertinent regardless of mode of delivery. You've been itching. Yes, I've been itching to talk. But I don't have anything physiologically to add. Because I think Sandy and Sarah certainly can cover, um, from their expertise, yeah. those, those piece. What I would ask is, if I'm a man, I am a man. But if I'm going to ask you... <laughs> I'm going to ask you, like, how, how do I best support my wife or partner who just had a baby? And if they're having pain with intercourse, what's my role? If I was coming to you and asking those questions, what, what would you tell me as, as a man? If I was like, how do I support my wife's ability to get back into this behavior that she's really excited about, but it's painful or hurts? Well, if your wife isn't already a patient of mine or your partner isn't already a patient of, of ours, what I would say is um, have, you, have you told her that there's help for the stuff that's going on? So if she's hurting, there's help. Um, 
and a lot of times help isn't sought. So the first thing I would be is like, honey, do you know that there's help? The second thing I would ask is like, what can I do to help you? (laughs) So if it's like, you know what, I'd love a foot rub or what I'd really love is for you to make me dinner or what I really need is to go get a mani-pedi. Can you watch the kid while I go? just need a nap. Just need a nap. So, so I would, I would, because again, with that being so multidimensional, asking them what they need is probably the most direct route to what is going to be the most helpful. But if they're hurting, letting them know there's help is so huge. And asking them what they need and then actually doing it. <laughs> Point. Not just, hey, what do you need? Okay, cool. Um, but, Fair. but the there is so much. Uh, I think. And, and this is just from my own experience of having children. Um, there's so much that goes with that, and your attention is so diverted into the child that if things don't feel good, you're still your attention's diverted into the child. So a caring partner can can really help you come back to yourself and what do you need for yourself to find pleasure again could just be something that you, you've just even forgotten was a thing. And, and it can be really cool to say, how can I help you really just enjoy this? There's um, literature out there on sensate focus, which is how couples can resume a, a sensual experience without intercourse or penetration of just becoming that, that sensual couple again that you were before some new little critter invaded the space. Um, and you have to redefine that. And, and that can be a cool thing. It could just be, can we get a sitter and that takes the kid and we can sit here and just have dinner? That, that could be a fantastic step. So sometimes it's that rediscovery that might be a really good place to start. Do you want, if you want to. Just say who you are. My name is Natalie. I'm a pelvic health therapist that's in the audience. And I happen to have had a baby three months ago. So this is all very new to me. Um, but I would just add as far as the social or psychosocial piece that Sarah was touching on, this is probably also the first time where you're aware that there, if you're following safe sleep uh, habits and all of that, that the doctor tells you, you probably have an infant in the room with you, which can be really awkward. (laughs) You hear the baby like snore or something. It's very disturbing and distracting. But anyway, I think that Finding that quiet time, maybe get a sitter, like I think Sandy mentioned, um, is just super important so that there's no, um, well, there's no distraction and both partners feel like they're in a good mental state and like not in parent mode in that moment. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Thank you. is a great thing because you're like, your radar's on, always listening for that noise, which is really not sexy. The... uh, did something squeak? What was that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's great. Thank you so much. Okay, so are we good with sex after a baby? We are totally I'm good. good. Anybody have questions? Babies. I'm terrified, but I think I. <laughs> we'll ignore that. Okay. Anyways, so. Foot rubs. The answer is. Okay. Next question. <laughs> Next question. Um, addressing so and I think this is a, actually a really interesting question because we all probably have patience with these concerns but it's addressing physical and psychological concerns with patients with cardiovascular or pulmonary impairments so I don't know if everyone has seen that movie with Jack Nicholson and um, Diane Keaton what is it something's got to give yeah, yeah. where he has a heart attack when he's with Diane Keaton's daughter, played by um, Amanda Pete, and um, and so what he has to do is kind of get up a flight of stairs in order to leave the Hamptons, which I mean, not true. Not that, wasn't that what? It was so he could have sex again. Oh, to have sex again, right? Yeah. So um, I think it's it's. It's definitely something that a lot of us as physical therapists have to deal with people with cardiovascular and pulmonary dysfunction. So let's talk about what are the concerns. All right. I will start with this one because it is actually relatively common in the geriatric population to have cardiovascular concerns. Um, One of the most common cardiovascular conditions is heart failure. 
Um, and it, it can be really concerning for a number of reasons. Um, some of the, the research suggests that there's 63% of, of people with heart failure have reduced sexual interest. And a lot of that is because they are scared, right? They are terrified of either they or their partner um, having a, some sort of cardiovascular symptom during sexual activity, which is a relatively high risk, but can be managed with the appropriate um, yeah, you know, the appropriate medical attention. Okay? So um, I think it's really important to note that a lot of these concerns aren't all physiological. A lot of them are psychosocial, and I think we have to be aware of both. Um, symptoms during sexual activity might be shortness of breath. You know, uh, with heart failure, you have something called paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, which is when you get very short of breath laying in the supine position, right? Your heart gets overloaded and can't clear the additional fluid. Um, medications can affect um, sexual function, like beta blockers or other medications for cardiac conditions that are meant to keep your blood pressure down. Um, they can also uh, affect your uh, arousal response. Um, and then there's a psychosocial concern of being um, overprotected, right? Either you're the patient, I'm a man, I don't want my wife to have to take care of me and do all of these medical things for me, and then I have to turn around and think of her as a sexual partner, right? It's a very hard transition for people to transition from caregiver to lover. And, and especially as you get older, a lot of times those roles become reversed, and you're a lot less of a lover and a lot more of a caregiver. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. So figuring out how we can empower people and, and teach them to relax and be confident with these things, in my opinion, is, is a big part. Inspired by Jason and, and um, how researchy he is. Uh, so I gave a talk two years ago, three years ago, um, on sex and cardiovascular disease. So obviously for a man, um, cardiovascular disease impacts sexual function in a lot of ways. One, making it po perhaps not possible. So some of the smallest blood vessels in our body well, in a man's body, most of us are women here, the, the smallest blood vessels in your two bodies um, are in your kidneys, but also in your penis. So if you start to have narrowing of your blood vessels, right, uh, if they can't fill up with blood, there's no erection. So actually erectile dysfunction, if you're, I'm trying to remember the exact thing, so forgive me if I misquote, but if you're having experience of erectile, erectile dysfunction, you're within five years, perhaps, of your first myocardial event. So if you're having erectile dysfunction and you're 40 years old, there's a lot of different reasons why that might be happening, but it's possible it's a cardiovascular issue that should be addressed so you don't drop dead five years from then. So that's one thing. Um, so it's, it's important to, to look at all the factors. I'm not saying that every man with erectile dysfunction who's under 45 has a heart issue or a cardiovascular issue, but it doesn't hurt to check. Um, so is that a question that you would ask someone? I would, actually. And so if, I, if, if someone comes to me at actually of any age with erectile dysfunction and that's one of their concerns, I ask them if they've seen a cardiologist. Because if the answer is no, I'd say, check that. Urologist and cardiologist. Yep. Rule out the medical stuff that isn't going to change with us. Yeah. For sure. And the, the, the reason for that, it's like some people will say, you know, PT and, and we can do PT first and we're this. Those conditions are, are medical conditions that have uh, necessity. It's an automatic out. And that has to be cleared before we treat them. That's, yeah. that's, that's non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. Now we're going to get more sciencey than I usually get at my job because I don't do tons of cardiac rehab. So we're going to talk METs. So talk what? METs. METs. Oh, Metabolic equivalents. Did I just make you happy? Just a little bit. All right. Do you want to? My, my stuff. <laughs> How's your blood flow? <laughs> well, um, hopefully. So uh, uh, I lost my place. Okay. So sexual activity pre-orgasm. Is two to three METs. What's that equivalent in like household chores, Jason? Oh, that would be sweeping a floor. You know, men, you should really be doing that a lot more. That probably helps you with your getting to the higher MET activities, wink, wink. So, Yeah, for sure. And then um, uh, orgasmic activity is three to four METs. So uh, it's funny. During this talk, I actually did the Jack Nicholson looking at the stairs going like, I'm going to make it up these fucking stairs. You can take that part out. Um, 
explicit. But um, what's really funny is when I gave this talk, I actually had a cardiac specialist giving it with me, thank goodness, because I'm not a cardiac expert. And she's like, actually, what you would need to do is to be able to run up like three flights of stairs in like three minutes. So you can drag your ass up every one of those steps. It does not mean you get to have sex if you've had a cardiac event. You need to be fit up and down those stairs and what is is there like a specific um measurement that we can kind of look for or at, like test in our patients that's actually i would look if they can't sweep the floor for a lot of reasons they don't get to have sex <laughs> is what i would say um but how about like three three to four mats what would that be equal to three to four mats you'd be starting to think about things like a raking shoveling snow um, you know light snow you'd be thinking about things like very fast walking you know five miles per hour on a treadmill for extended periods yeah so so just thinking about those things as your goal um, well, you can have the goal goal but then these are things that would indicate you might be ready to m meet that goal. I just there's so many jokes I can't I can't even figure out here where to go here but so basically if you're if you're concerned about your spouse or your partner that's a male and their ability to have sex then you could screen them by saying sweep the floor shovel the driveway take the dog for a nice long walk and if they're not able to do those things then it is not in their best interest to have sex Wait, we have a question but does that does that also pertain to women as well? So what I mean we're talking about men with cardiovascular events, but women can have a cardiovascular event. Do you want do you want me to answer that first and then you can ask your question? Okay, go ahead. Say who you are. My name is Dan from Utah and I I have a patient who is in his late 90s and recently just because of increased fall risk has been uh, put into a, a assisted care facility, and I've seen him on an outpatient basis, who is has a little bit of mild dementia, but has been sexually active, you know, well into his 90s. In fact, to, to the, yeah. <laughs> to the point that, that his biggest frustration with being in this, in this facility was that the bed was a hospital bed, and he didn't think that was gonna be big enough for he and his girlfriend, so. <laughs> And bless his heart that he, with the dementia, he, he, you know, whether or not that was ever going to happen or not was debatable. But the, the concern was that, uh, and he's on no, no meds at all. So, and, you know, pretty healthy for late 90s. And part of that was probably a compliance issue. But part of it is his age and doctors feeling like at this point, you know, whatever, whatever's working or not working, you know, we'll just let things happen. But, um, but he, was, he was asking about... Uh, Viagra and so the the I was kind of at a loss because I thought okay on so many levels this guy is a unicorn and trying to figure out how to even address this having a lot of new conversations for me so I mean is there is is that still somebody even in that circumstance that you guys would recommend medically screening or or at that point I mean how do you how do you counsel a guy like that so, so medical, if he doesn't have cardiovascular concerns, and if you mentioned Viagra, does he need it? <laughs> Those are two different things. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but ultimately, I would say that's a medical thing that he can discuss with his doctor. The fact that he has some, some sort of dementia. Um, Jason actually had a beautiful thing on consent and nursing homes and sex, which I'm going to let him handle. Yeah, the the idea of, of dementia being a you know absolute exclusion for sex is a little bit concerning, and a lot of a lot of nursing homes have that kind of sort of blanket issue. Um, you know, I, and I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for the health of, <laughs> the health of sexual activity in somebody with dementia, and um, especially if they're in a, in a protected environment, which sounds like your your patient uh, certainly was. Um, so as far as, you know, setting up the environment for success, so to speak, for, for him, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's a lot that can be done that's very appropriate to facilitate that activity without crossing any ethical boundaries, for sure. Yeah, good answer. Yeah. Well done. Did that answer? Okay. So... Also, you do have a uniform. <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, if we can, if we can just, oh yeah, go ahead. Just, which I might have said on one of the previous podcasts, but I ask all of my patients if they're sexually active, um, and if they say yes, then it's is it fine? Then that's not a thing. But if they say no, then I follow up with that: of is that for you know, is it not a problem, or is it are you not interested, or do you have any problems with it, or is anything? The the oldest person was a lady that was 96 that said that she was having problems still finding partners and I completely lost my clinical thing and put my clipboard down and just laughed and said you're my you're my new hero but but that is that is the oldest so far is a lady that's still sexually active um, just hard to find people still interested um, at her age which I think is great yeah please don't make assumptions about sexual activities or preferences full stop And I hate to break up the flow here, but I do need to take a quick 30-second break to hear from our sponsors, NetHealth. PTs, what do you hope to accomplish in 2018? I bet providing even better patient care and increasing revenue are top on the list. First, expand your visit capacity. Then get paid for your services, ramp up patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. The good news is there's one solution that brings it all to the table. Redoc, powered by XFIT, is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. Imagine PT billing, coding, compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. Learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services at nethealth.com slash healthy. And so if we can just circle back quickly onto the cardiovascular part, especially before we were talking about women, or we are talking about men is using the Jack Nicholson, but women have cardiovascular problems as well. So do those same principles apply to women and men? Uh, as far as the cardiovascular function and capacity, like the METs for having sex and having an orgasm, yeah. But the interesting thing with females, and it's one of the reasons why Viagra doesn't really work for females, is that um, the erectile function of the clitoris isn't essential for sex. It's essential for penetration with a male partner. So if the blood flow is not good for a man, the erection is not going to happen. Sex isn't going to happen. For females, um, a blood flow issue can be a little bit of an issue, but it's not a deal breaker like it would be in a man. But as far as like heart function, uh, yes, it, it does pertain to women as well. Yeah, and I think for women, it's a you know this idea of being disempowered is also very important to acknowledge um, that um, yeah I, th- I think there's a lot to be said for you know males taking care of women women and especially in the older adult generation were typically the uh, m- maintainers of the household did a lot of things um, and so a man sweep those floors and a man having to take over those functions for her and and kind of take away the autonomy for sex or be a little bit overprotective um sometimes uh that can be really uh sexually challenging you know feeling like you're being taken care of by somebody else who uh isn't uh isn't acting like a sexual partner i think that can be concerning oh you want to and then i got stuff you don't we might. Some, sometimes it's scary, Sarah, and I say the same things. Um, so to bring this into the LGBTQ uh, human population, um, a partner stuff, and I try and be very careful when I say that about spouse or partner, um, because the, the variety of partnerings are still significant in this conversation. So cardiac conditions, regardless, um, uh, arousal and interest, regardless, um, there are some differences when you're talking about male and male or female and female, but much of everything we've said works regardless of your orientation and preference. Or gender. Or gender. Um, and, and I would just also say, similar to when we were talking about having a baby, is that you, you kind of have a role change. So like if, if there's been like, we've had this thing and it's worked this way for like one year or 10 years or 50 years, um, when someone does become ill, if you're not typically the caregiver, and now there's there's like that kind of role shift. That's a psychosocial issue. So you know we're talking about cardiac health and keeping them alive, so they can have sex. Awesome. The psychosocial part of feeling connected and, and having that relationship, and, and both of you feeling okay with that new relationship, even if it's a temporary role shift, is um, is definitely something to consider. And that can be, I, I think, a more awkward conversation for some than the how sex go and talk. They can be like, eh, it's fine. Um, but to have that 
moment to really reflect on why things are the way they are and why you're feeling the way you're feeling starts to be harder. But luckily, if you don't feel too comfortable, there are a lot of really great other types of therapists and counselors who can help you with that. Okay, so Sandy kind of, I'm glad you kind of touched on LGBTQI. Um, So what I'd like to talk about, and this was an interesting question from the student group, was um, for transgender individuals, uh, what kind of challenges may be faced due to the changes with the use of hormone replacement therapy that therapists need to consider? And also for those undergoing transgender surgeries, I mean, this is kind of a whole new world, right? So what can therapists do uh, to kind of help bridge the gap for some of those people? I'll take that and and start with saying I am not an expert in this. Um, So, but... But we see, even you see, so Yuchenna Osai, fantastic research. Uh, Meryl Alapado, fantastic resource. Uh, Rena, whose last name I can't remember in Chicago, she's a fantastic resource. But what we all will say is that there is no evidence for what we're saying. So take this on a, we don't have good data. Uh, UC just told me today she's thinking of doing a PhD, uh, which would be fantastic because we need really good information. Yuchenna Osai and you can find her under UC Logic on Instagram and please do if you're interested in anything about sex and sensuality she is totally the bomb Um, it's great Uh, but the the thing is that when when you're when you're in the process of the transgender process I said that awkwardly um, things are shifting and this sounds so like both intuitively obvious but yet needs to be said is that you came as a human with sensory nerve fibers and and pleasure in a place and then you undergo a process and hormone things and surgery that shifts where your where your pleasure and your sensation is is Um, so you have a, a journey of rediscovery of that after the surgery there still is not enough information on on outcomes and likelihood and all of those things it's still too new but what seems to be happening is that people fight really hard for this to happen there doesn't seem to be a lot of pain associated with it it's more of a rediscovering what works well for you Um, and that can be framed in an exceptionally positive way this doesn't need to be pathologized. And I, I hope that as this emerges, that it's done in, a, in that, like, hey, let's find where the good parts are instead of where are your problems? Um, because that shift in focus is really important. Um, I had one patient that she was fantastic and uh, her and her partner, they were partners before her, she transitioned. They were partners after she transitioned. She had this pain thing that just wouldn't go away um, but she said it best we were working and, and and she couldn't figure out what felt good and it was one of those moments of inspiration where I said it's like you went on vacation and while you were gone someone redid your kitchen and you came home and you didn't really know and you tried to put your coffee in the microwave but you put it in the freezer because you weren't really sure where things were so they went and her and her partner went and found all the pleasure spots and then everything was fine um but but that's an end of one and i don't have much more data than that also best homework ever (laughs) go find your pleasure spots yeah and i 100% agree with what you know sandy and sarah have said you know as far as you know let's not stigmatize or, or medicalize this but what I, what I do want to say is that if, if patients are getting hormone therapy, there are things that you should be aware of as physical therapists. And so if you are a man trans, uh, you know, transferring to women, I don't know what the... Transitioning. Transitioning. I want to make sure I get this terminology <laughs> right. Effort, if you are if we're transitioning to, to being a woman, you're, you're typically going to be getting estrogen. And if you're getting estrogen, those of you who take birth control know there is some risks associated with, with estrogen birth control, especially blood clots and, and cardiovascular things. Yeah. 
So, so blood clots are probably the biggest huge risk, you know, the, especially in, in if you're dealing with older patients, um, that risk is going to be substantially higher. Um, and there's also risk for, for women getting testosterone. They're, they're a little less uh, explicit and a little more nuanced, but certainly things that you'd want to be aware of that are uh, associated with uh, testosterone, including... Um, you know, cardiovascular events. So there's a lot of more cardiovascular symptoms, especially um, cholesterol issues and, and other uh, metabolic risk factors. So certainly something to be aware of. Um, you know, basically men are less healthy than women. That's basically what I'm going to uh, <laughs> conclude here, but um, definitely be, yes, 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 yes. Be more concerned about that. Okay, so does anyone here have any questions? So we're going to kind of open it up a little bit. We've got a little bit of, let's say we've got like 10 minutes or so for questions. So does anyone have any questions? I know some of you are pelvic health therapists, some are not. Yeah, so just say your name, where you're from, what you do. So I'm Christina, and I am a third-year physical therapy student, but I'm interested in pelvic health. Um, right now, I'm working in an outpatient physical therapy office in Georgia, and I'm very interested in pelvic health, and I have no problems asking questions, but I work with a lot of people who, if I weren't there, it would never get brought up. Um, and so my question is, how do you, what would you suggest to people to empower them as therapists to ask questions, especially if you are working with maybe a geriatric population in the South? who are not super comfortable talking about it, what questions would you ask and how would you read that situation to figure out what questions to ask? I've been there. <laughs> been there so, yeah, right. So this is Sandy. One of, the, um, one of the advantages of having moved around a lot is that I was here in Louisiana for 2.8 years. And... Um, I might have been I might have been happy to move <laughs> the, the, but so I, I got to do this here in the south and the cultural and the religious implications of the conversation and how you broach it are really important um, the sex is an ADL um, people that have orthopedic problems with their backs or their hips you know if you've ever watched a sport thing and the guy gets hit in the nuts and he grabs his knee the, it's, it's that, oh my God, it's my knee, but it really, we know it's your left testicle. The, but you're not going to grab that. It's a cultural thing. So, so some people will come in the clinic and they're like, it's my back, it's my back. And you're chesting and you do all this fancy PT stuff and their back seems fine. And you're like, so when does this bother you? And they, you can read it in their face. And they're like, mm -hmm. and so you, you kind of have to pull it out. It's like, during the day? No, I'm fine during the day. Is it at night? It's like playing 20 questions with your patients and you just sort of find a way um, to get to it. So you'll, you'll pick it up. You just, just have to ask. And this is when I get to do my, uh, to Julie Fritz, um, who took the, the sex question off the Oswestry. The, it, the original Oswestry has a sex question on the, as it's one of the red flags. If sex is painful, that is never normal. Um, they redid the Oswestry in 2001 for this country to take the sex question off because they were uncomfortable asking it. That's not cool, and I say on every time I get a chance to please get rid of that abomination and go back to the original one that, that is a beautiful way for a person to say, wait, it's not supposed to hurt? Um, because some people just think that that's normal and they have to put up with it. But just like you should never leak, sex is not supposed to hurt. Um, then that can be a way to get in there. If they leave the question blank, you can say, I noticed you left that blank. Is that because you're embarrassed or is that because there's a problem? And, and it puts it in their head and that's really valuable. And not just putting it in their head, but also letting, the, letting them know that there are things that you can do to help that. And the same thing actually with incontinence and bowel and bladder changes in general. A lot of clinics, so we actually don't do this at Entropy because we're talking about peeing, pooping, and sex regardless. Um, but at my old job, there was actually like, uh, you know, like any changes in like feeling in your legs and any bowel or bladder changes. It's a red flag that when people circle yes to just that one, it doesn't mean you need to send them for an MRI or back to their doctor because they have cancer. What you need to do is go, I saw you circled yes. Can you tell me more about that? And a lot of times it is about, ah, you know, my 
bladder has changed. And there's some really simple questions like, how long has that been going on? I actually have a friend who messaged me one day who was like, so I can't feel it when I go to the bathroom. I'm like, you should go to the ER. <laughs> Don't panic, but you should definitely go to the ER. Um, but other people are like, yeah, since my kid was born. And you're like, how old's your kid? They're like 17. And you're like, this is not an emergent issue. Let's talk about this. Or I feel really awkward talking about this. I'm going to send you to Sandy. Because um, in case you're wondering, there is help for that. And I think when it comes to sexual dysfunction and bowel and bladder dysfunction, a lot of people don't know what's normal. And I think even when people aren't happy with the function, which is really the key that they need to get help, um, they don't know that there's help. So, you know, if your doctor goes, are you peeing your pants? Are you going to say yes, even if you are? Not in the four minutes you get to see them. And we normalize light bladder leakage, but you would oh. not lor- normalize light roof leakage. You'd get your roof fixed. There's, there's not a little pretty bucket that you want to use. You want to get that problem fixed. Well and, well, and to be fair, it, it is actually, I would say, pr- predominantly female issue with just going like, well, my mom had it. My friends have it. I have it. No big deal. I will tell you, the men I see who are incontinent, this is unacceptable. <laughs> Like, they are willing to go to lengths you would not believe to not be leaking urine. But women, we, we have normalized it. So, again, just dropping that little hint that if if you want to talk about it, there's actually a lot of stuff that we can do to help you and maybe actually make it go away. Um, the last two the last day, Sandy and I were both in um, the pre-conference with Kari Bo talking about, she's probably, the I would say, the predominant um, researcher in incontinence and pelvic health. And it was an amazing talk because she just was like, here's what we know, here's what we don't. When it comes to physical therapy, we don't have a lot of really great evidence for what we do for our interventions, but we do for incontinence. We do for urinary incontinence, yet we don't teach it in schools and we don't do it regularly, which is a shame. Yeah, and and I'll add before we take our next question here. I mean, one of the things about adding a question like this to like an intake form, you know, think about for your older adult patients, sexual activity might be the most intensive physical activity that they participate in, right? That might get their heart rate up more than anything else that they do, right? Population health. Yeah, so if you're screening for for cardiovascular issues, one of the best ways to do that is asking a question about sex, especially for your older adult patients, because if they have shortness of breath or or chest pain during sex or they can't participate in sexual activity because of fatigue, like, that's a huge red flag to me for screening for cardiovascular issues because, you know, your older adult patients aren't running regularly. They're not... Necessarily. What do Consider older adult. Uh, substantially older than Sandy, you know. So, so statistically, older adults over sixty-five don't run, okay, as as, as much as the rest of the population, and 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 participate in vigor. What we would consider vigorous physical activity, which sexual activity typically falls underneath. So, if you want it in for your clinic to say, hey, look, we need to make sure we catch these people with cardiovascular disease. I don't want somebody to have a heart attack while they're in therapy add a sex question and then you know that's that's a good way to scare them into adding it in you know and you know and uh, and and i think then you can start delving into some of the conversations that, that sandy and sarah have have done um or encourage your colleagues to refer them to you if they you know have sexual concerns um to make sure that they have somebody to vent to yeah. all right so we're gonna ask another follow-up questions karen sipped away for a second but i'm gonna participate Hi everyone, I'm Meg Cochran. I'm currently practicing in North Mississippi. So I wanted to comment on practicing in the Southern state and then follow up with a question. Um, I am a new grad, I'm an early professional. So I just graduated in May and I started my own pelvic health department in North Mississippi. (laughs) Um, So the biggest help that I had as a new grad in um, an area where people really have no idea what pelvic health is and that it's even an option is I did a lot of in-services with my colleagues and then um, clinics around the area, which I found very helpful because there are a lot of physical therapists that have no idea what uh, pelvic health physical therapists do. And so when I gave those couple of in-services, I started to get a lot more appropriate referrals and people were actually talking about it and it was very encouraging um, for the patients too. It was for, for me and for the patients because when they ended up coming to me, 
they were so encouraged and by the time we we sit down and we talk they are like oh my goodness I'm so happy that someone is doing this um, you know we do have times of embarrassment um, but most of the time they're really happy to talk about it so I've had a lot of positive experiences in the south um, if it's an issue like they were saying most of the time people really want to talk about it especially if you're like hey we may have a solution <laughs> Um, but I, I did want to ask, is there a resource that you all have for physical therapists to bring up the conversation? Uh, when I was a student, we kind of, my, I have three other classmates that were interested in pelvic health, and we came up with a diagram for our classmates that are like, if you have a patient that has this, you can ask this. And if they say yes or no, kind of dispersing from there. So is there a resource that you have for other physical therapists to make the conversation easier. Thank you for those questions. I just want to give a quick shout out to Meg because she also was the winner of the Women in PT scholarship last year. So she came to the Women in PT Summit and she won that through the section on women's health. So just want to give a quick shout out there. The original Us Westry. Also, a, a shout out to the home health section. I worked with them to make a basically a decision tree um, for incontinence, so original West Westry for the sex question. You want to talk about about incontinence? Um, there's a deci decision tree. Just you know, is this happening? Yes or no? But where is that? At the on the home health section website. It's free if you're a member. No, it's free. It's just free. Full stop. Excellent. Um, if not, I could have sent you a copy. Um, but yeah, so it just kind of takes you through. Like, oh, is this happening? Oh, we can. Tr and it actually will take you through some interventions you can try because it. Contrary to popular belief, not every incontinence patient needs to do 100 million Kegels. They can be super helpful. However, it's not the answer for everyone. Figuring out the type of incontinence they have is really the first step to help them. So does anyone else have any other questions? Because if you do, now's the time. Know them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just say, come on over. Just say, um, just your name and where where you practice and what your okay, question is. Great, great. My name is Amy Wagner, and I uh, practice and work in San Antonio, Texas. And I do have a question about uh, returning to sexual activity after having a baby. I would say just the, the physical activity as well as addressing kind of the psychosocial elements because having a baby, of course, is a takes a toll on the body physically, but there's a lot of other, you know, becoming a new mom and the role change as well. Go ahead. So, yeah, we did touch on it earlier, but really, like, once you get past that medical clearance of, like, six weeks, um, again, I, I was like, if you're going at it at six weeks, like, gold star to you, that's, like, when it's medically safe, not necessarily when it's going to be amazing. Um, the other thing to consider is usually once you're cleared to have sex is you have a six-week-old baby at the least, you could have like a three-year-old and a seven-year-old, um, and those are all complicating factors for sure. <laughs> I think it's fair for children. Complicating factors. <laughs> Variables, you know? Um, anyway, obviously Jason likes dogs more than children. <laughs> um, but so the short thing is once you're medically cleared and you return to sexual intercourse, if, if it's not everything you hoped for to to consider what the m largest contributing factors may be. Obviously, bringing a child into the world, regardless of the method, is a, a thing. It's a situation. So it's tissues are still healing. There's stuff that's different, and it can feel better later. But also, there's sometimes you need a little bit of help to kind of reclaim it and have that feel better. But then also, there's the psychosocial bits of... Well, and I said this before, like, hey, we used to be like super fun lovers and now like you're dad and I'm mom and this is weird. And or, you know, if it's the third one, you're like, seriously, I just want a nap. So working out the what you think the largest contributing factor is and taking a good hard look at that first and then kind of trying to tease out to what you can do, depending on the number of people involved and um, and what you're willing to do in the time that you have. And I. All of that and in the very beginning, um, 
it's still most tissues after they've been through a lot uh, take up to 12 weeks to feel normal. So even when so you're cleared, yeah. you still might have some numbness, some loss of sensation, some Soreness. more easily sore, because you're getting better. Um, it's, it's been equated to running a marathon and needing to do that taper um, and then build back up. Uh, but it's really hard to grade sex. Like two minutes done, it doesn't really work like that. It can be done. It can, but the, and that's where I will say again, the sensate focus uh, information is really helpful because it helps to build that, that sensuality back and the connection back to where penetrative intercourse might not be the goal in the beginning, but you can still have that sensual connection. Uh, so that all depends. The, and like Sarah said, it depends on how many kids are there knocking on the door while you're trying to have sex in five minutes before okay. someone comes to interrupt. And the, the, yeah, we're going to give it to you. But it, that, well, hold on. Just, that's the layers. It's like figuring out, like, is it that we have five minutes go? Or is it that I'm just still a bit sore and this doesn't feel very good right now? Or honestly, if we can do this and I can sleep at the same time, I'd be down. <laughs> But otherwise, no thank you right now. No offense. Um, so there, there, again, there's a lot of layers in working out which layer you're on. Is it? That's so true. Uh, this is Natalie again. Another very practical thing we did not address earlier when we talked about this topic, and I don't think enough doctors um, share about this at a six-week follow-up. I hear from patients semi-often that they just ha they just feel a lot of discomfort um, from vaginal dryness. So if they're breastfeeding, that's another huge thing that you can address. Yes, it does. So um, encouraging foreplay to get arousal fluid from the Bartholin's glands, that can help. And then maybe using lubricant if you're still having that vaginal dryness. Thank you. Does anyone else have any other questions? Because if not, we'll kind of wrap things up. And what I'll ask, does, does anyone have it? I want to like, no? We're good? Okay, so what I'd like the three of you to do is maybe just if you can give one or two takeaways that you'd like people to get from this conversation, what would they be? So what I'll say is all of this conversation has really centered on you know, um, how to make sex a little bit more pleasurable in a lot of circumstances, you know, whether it's psychosocial support, whether or not it's, you know, um, uh, you know, reassuring people that it's not dangerous, um, or whether it's um, taking, uh, you know, the discomfort and, and um, concerns of women after having a baby and figuring out how to make sure that those concerns are allayed by both uh, their partner, whoever that might be, um, and their medical professional, right? So what I wanna say is that at, at, from a male perspective, ask questions, right? Ask questions to your partner. And if you're an older adult and uh, acting as a caregiver for somebody with a medical condition that might make sex difficult, do the same thing. Go to medical appointments. Ask questions. Don't guess, right? Get help when you need and, and know that there's lots of resources available for you to make sure that sex is both a pleasurable and safe activity for you. Should always be safe, you know? Um, you should really take a little bit of time and reflect on why don't I want to talk about this, especially if your patient has had the guts to bring up the fact that sex is not everything they want it to be. Because um, I get messages all the time from people who are like, I got a sex question, and it's that kneeling hurts during sex. I'm like, that's kneeling. That, that's, that's not a my problem. That's a, something any physical therapist should be able to address. So, but understanding what's important to the patient and understanding that if you're not comfortable talking about it, to please refer them on, to let them know there is help um, because we do want to keep them safe and healthy. But also, like, honestly, as long as we're on this earth, it's not about just staying alive. It's about, like, enjoying pretty much every second you can manage um, in between all the stuff you have to do to, like, pay the bills. So... Um, to yeah, to really focus on what the patient's goal is, and if it's sex, that's your that's your job is to help get them back to where they want to be. Yeah, whether it's like running a 10k or being having able to orgasm. enjoy having an orgasm, right? Um, so that, so my my <laughs> my clinical pearl <laughs> would be to um, seek pleasure. Help your patients not only just avoid pain, but to actually seek pleasure. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Great.
Yeah, no, one or two. That's all we needed. All right, so thank you to Sandy and to Sarah and Jason for installment number four of our sex talk. And thank you to all of you for being the audience and asking great questions and being here. So give yourself a big round of applause. So thank you so much. Yes, it's, it is actually a little more fun than us doing like a drunken podcast at Disneyland or... Well, although that was actually pretty pretty fun. It was. It's all good. So thank you... Sex is more fun with an audience, yes. <laughs> and on that note, thank you everyone for coming and thank you all for listening. <laughs> have, um, have a great night and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. So there you have it, part four of our conversation on sex. And we love doing this because it gets people talking, gets you talking to your patients. That's our goal. And again, a huge, huge thank you to the folks over at NetHealth. So again, if you're interested in Redoc powered by XFIT, it can help expand your visit capacity, get paid for your services, ramp up your patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. Please check out these wonderful people, and they really are great people, uh, over at nethealth.com healthy. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.